Turn your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 7. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 893. As many of you know, uh, my folks live quite, well, they live a little bit away from us. Uh, they're back in Michigan. And when they come, it's, it's a big affair. You know, they have to get on a plane and, you know, they usually have to drive into Chicago, which, you know, eh, is what it is, and, uh, and fly out and, you know, the shuttle brings them and they take a lot of transportation, uh, modes of transportation to get out here. And they stay usually about a week and there comes that time where you're like, okay, how do we come off of the grandparent high? For the children, that is. And we have to think through for each of our kids, especially as they get older, how do we prepare? And, and for you out there, you've probably been on both sides, some of you. And how do you prepare the kids for when grandma and grandpa leave? So often for us, what we've done so far it seems to work. We will often talk about how, you know, they're going to leave in the morning. We'll say it the last, you know, the night before. We'll warn them that it's going to happen because sometimes my folks have to get a really early shuttle out to get back to um, the eastern time zone. And so, you know, they wake up all of a sudden, grandma and grandpa are gone. Uh, we don't want that. We don't want that shock and awe. And so, so we'll give a warning. And then there's usually discussion of either the next visit or the next time we can talk on Skype or the phone or that sort of thing. There's a promise to a later interaction, right? And that's the normal pattern for us. What's interesting is that you sort of see that same pattern in the Bible with Jesus, so Jesus, throughout John, and we've seen this time and time again, is, is hinting at the end of the book as what will happen, that, that the book ends with him dying and rising and ascending back to heaven. And you see periodically through the book, Jesus is talking about, I'm not always going to be here. I'm going to leave. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This is your teacher, your master, the one you're apprenticing under. For three years, you and the, the twelve and Jesus are sharing the same living space, traveling throughout the countryside together. But what will happen to them when Jesus leaves? Now, thankfully, Jesus was smart, and he prepared his disciples for his eventual departure. Now, we see this much more at the end of the book as it's getting so much closer to his departure. Chapters 13, really through 17, have elements of this throughout those chapters, but it gets introduced here in chapter 7. What is going to happen when Jesus leaves? What will the disciples do without Jesus? And how will they continue on? 
Now, for us, the application's a little different because we never had the physical presence of Jesus with us. We never could, you know, have a traditional conversation like you'd have with any other person. But there's some similarities in that. How do we live with not having the physical presence of Jesus among us? And so today, as we continue through John 6, we're going to see how Jesus will provide for the disciples in his physical absence and how we will be provided for as believers in the bodily absence of Jesus. So our big idea this morning, found in the outline provided in your bulletin, is this, in the physical absence of Jesus, God gives us the life-giving Holy Spirit. So let's first look at where is Jesus going in verses 32 to 36. Start in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now you remember the setting for John 7 is in the temple. Jesus is talking about himself. He's preaching about himself. And we saw in the last part of the passage that some people wanted to arrest him. And so there's this commotion. He was not arrested because it wasn't his time. But then some people are believing in Jesus. And while we saw it's a fragile faith, it's the beginning of a faith journey. And I think that's what is being referred to here with the crowd muttering. Everyone is talking differently about Jesus. Someone to arrest him, someone to believe in him, and someone to follow him. And so the Pharisees and the chief priests send the temple police, sent officers to arrest him. And in response to that, Jesus again preaches to the crowd. Look at verses 33 and 34. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So, in hindsight, we know what he's talking about. This is a reference to his eventual death, resurrection, and ascension. Some accounts say that this particular episode happened about six months before the eventual crucifixion. So that's probably what Jesus is saying when he's saying, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Again, one of the ways Jesus talks about God the Father. Now in verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Again, we know this is in reference to the ascension. But what's interesting is that there's an element of time running out. You see, there's a time limit on seeking after Jesus. Now, for these people, if they're seeking to arrest him, when he goes to heaven, they can't follow him there. But it's also a reminder calling us to faith today that we have our life to believe in Jesus. But when we die, we do not have that opportunity to place our faith in Christ. 
And so the message is, seek Jesus today. Believe in him today while you still can. Just as there was a time limit for those people to arrest Jesus. But in saying this, Jesus brings about confusion among the people. So let's look at their confusion in verses 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Again, the people are not thinking on the level that Jesus is thinking. They are thinking on the superficial, being able to physically see Jesus. They're like, where's he going to go that we couldn't find him? Because, you know, he'd have to walk there and we'd have to walk and eventually we could catch up to him perhaps. But then there's an interesting thing in verse 35. Look at their second question. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Now, the dispersion among the Greeks refers to Jewish people who lived outside of Israel. That's what he means. So they've been dispersed, hence the dispersion. They live among the Gentiles, the Greeks. And then, secondly, the Greeks. So he's in Jerusalem right now. But there is, is he going to go out to the, to the Jews who live outside of Israel? And then is he going to talk to the Gentiles? And in one sense, it's a great example of John having the people speak better than they know. Because this is exactly the pattern of the book of Acts. The gospel is first preached in Acts in Jerusalem. And then it goes to the Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem, and eventually it went to the Gentiles. So in one sense, these people are predicting exactly what's going to happen. (laughs) And again, for those of us who know the end of the story, we can see that God knew exactly what he was doing. And that this gospel was never to be limited to Jerusalem and the Jews, but that God had a plan to take the good news of Jesus to all the nations of the world. And it's hilarious to see the enemies of Jesus saying this (laughs) and getting it in one sense exactly right, (laughs) but not in the way that they think. But moving from this confusion about what Jesus is talking about, John moves us to verses 37 and 39, where it talks about what is going to happen when Jesus leaves. So in verses 32 to 36, Jesus introduces this idea that he is going to leave. He is going to go back to the Father after he has died and risen again. But again, we're left with that question, what are the disciples going to do? And again, for those of us who did not live during this time, what are we going to do without Jesus living among us. So let's look at verses 37 to 38, and we're going to see Jesus promise the coming of the Holy Spirit. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is the last day of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that we've talked about throughout chapter 7. If you haven't been here for those sermons, it was a feast of the Jewish people where everyone would come to Jerusalem and make little lean-tos, little shacks that they could stay in to remember their time wandering as a people in the wilderness as recorded in the first five books of the Bible. And it's on this last day, this great day, the final day of this week-long feast that Jesus stands up and teaches again. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. As you follow along, if you're familiar with the book of John, you will recognize that Jesus has used this metaphor to talk about himself before. And he uses it in John chapter 4, when he has that interaction with the woman at the well. Let me read to you an excerpt from John chapter 4. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is using the idea of water to talk about the life, the abundant life, the eternal life that he offers to those who believe in him. But then we have a question, why, why water? Why talk about water? Well, first of all, you think of the part of the world in which Jesus lived. A lot of it is desert. A lot of it is very dry. So water is very precious in that part of the world. You think of the time in which Jesus lived. This is a time before indoor plumbing. So when you have a source of water like a spring or a well, you build your whole town around that. Because <laughs> you're moving to get your water. And with that, along with the lack of modern plumbing, is lack of modern sanitation. So you don't just want to get some stagnant water out of a little pool that you made because of all the diseases therein. And so you can see how water is wrapped up in life and how they would have very much understood the necessity of water and water that is moving and not just stagnant and full of disease. On top of that, so not just where Jesus lived and when in time he lived, but this festival. This festival was remembering the wandering in the wilderness. And a part of that wandering was the miracle of God providing water in the middle of the desert for the people of Israel out of the rock. And so there was a ritual done at this festival in the temple where the priests would take a large container of water. 
at the pool of Siloam. And they'd carry it to the temple and they would pour it out at the altar. It's sort of like how we have the holiday 4th of July and we connect that with fireworks because that's a part of celebrating 4th of July, blowing things up. That's right, America. Okay. (laughs) So for the people who celebrated this festival, they would connect it with pouring out of water. It was this big ritual that was done. So again, you think of the necessity for water, the fact that this celebration was connected with water, and this picture of cascading water falling at the altar. And it's in this context that Jesus compares himself to that water. That life-giving flowing water, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, rivers of living water, what does he mean there? Again, you have, back then, you did have an understanding of stagnant water and moving water, water that was clean. For me, I always think about the camp that I used to work at when I was in college. It was called Spring Hill because there were many springs and many hills and the people were very creative with their names. But there's one spring in particular it was by the craft house on one of the parts of camp and it was, the grass had all been worn out around this spring. It was a large spring. It was very near the surface and so you'd see you could see the bubbling out of this spring. You could see the movement of the sand cycling through. It was, it was moving water. You could stand in it. The, the kids would try to see who could stand in it for the longest and win a candy bar be, by uh, betting their friends on who could stand in this freezing water for the longest time. I only encouraged it, never did it. Um, <laughs> smarter, not harder people, Okay. But this idea of of clean water, of cold water, of fresh water, moving and moving, of this life-giving water, and I think that's what Jesus was getting at with picturing that their hearts were springing and flowing and bubbling over with life. That this is a wonderful picture of the abundant, eternal life that God has called us to, that can be ours through faith in Christ. But how does this connect to the fact that Jesus just talked about leaving? Again, if Jesus leaves, you would think our lives get worse. That it's not very life-giving for Jesus to leave. So how do these two ideas come together? Well, thankfully, in verse 39, John has told us what we need to think. There's a few times that the gospel writers do this Uh, Verse 39 is one of those things, and we're very thankful for that. And it's this idea of life and what we're going to do when Jesus leaves come together. Look at verse 39. This is John the narrator speaking. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
John tells us that what Jesus is talking about here, of rivers of living water flowing out of the hearts of believers, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now John adds some explanation because he is writing this later on. And he explains to his audience, listen, the Spirit hadn't come yet. Pentecost hadn't happened yet. Because this far in the story, Jesus has not died, resurrected, and ascended. And that's what it is when it says Jesus was not yet glorified. That's referring to the death, resurrection, and ascension. And so the idea is, since those things have happened, believers have the Holy Spirit. And again, he is like flowing rivers of living water in the hearts of believers. Now, a real natural question here is how did... How did John, how did Jesus get to the Holy Spirit from rivers of living water? Let me give you a short answer from the book of Nehemiah. So one of the neat things about the book of Nehemiah is it actually records an, in, an instance of the people celebrating the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament. And the people celebrate the festival in in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. In chapter 9, there is a prayer to God, a long prayer to God by the people. Listen to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. So we see what this verse does. It connects the wilderness wanderings where they received manna and water miraculously from God. And then it talks about how God gave the Spirit to his people all within the context of celebrating the festival of booths. (laughs) And so I think it's places like this in the Old Testament where Jesus is helping the people understand the fulfillment That just as God gave water to give life to the people, in the days after Jesus has died, in the last days, in the days in which we now live, he gives miraculously his spirit to his people. So Jesus connects the life-giving water of the wilderness with the life-giving spirit. He is like the water gushing out of the rock in the wilderness. He is like the big bowls of water poured out at the altar in the festival of booths. So I want to turn our thoughts to this. How is the Holy Spirit life-giving for us today? See, in this part of John, he doesn't get into many details about the Spirit. But there's this larger idea that we are, that the Spirit is a, is a conduit of life for the believer in Jesus. So I want to suggest to you three, three categories of ways that the Spirit gives life to us today. How he is like a spring of water in our hearts today. The first one is new life in Christ, or what we might call regeneration. Good theological word there. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 3. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you see all the instances in there of, of new life, of the Holy Spirit, of being poured out on God's people and as bringing about life? What Titus is telling us is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, by his mercy and grace, gives new life and eternal life to those who believe in him. So when you have that initial trust in Christ, that initial decision of faith, the Holy Spirit is bringing you to life. He is regenerating you. You are reborn in the Spirit. So the life in Christ you have is from the Spirit, not because of works done by you in righteousness, but according to God's mercy and the washing, the washing of the Holy Spirit. So our new life in Christ is from the Holy Spirit. That's the first way the Holy Spirit is the life giver. Secondly, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, who are believers in Jesus, I'm going to sort of combine two things here, but the second category is that the Holy Spirit cultivates godly character and empowers godly work. And these two go hand in hand. So the way that we experience life is that the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more like Jesus in who we are, our character, and what we do, our activity. Let me give you two other verses for this that will be mostly familiar to you. Galatians 5, to 23 speaks to the character we are to have. These are the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So your character as provided in these adjectives, these descriptors here, is the work of the Spirit in your life. So godly character and then godly work. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 12, 4-7 and 11. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So what does this have to do with life? And this, this can feel counterintuitive. But I think the Bible is very clear that when we grow in godly character and when we exercise our gifts and abilities in a godly way, that that, that in and of itself is life-giving. 
serving others, changing. Again, it can feel like that's just a bummer and is life stealing, but in fact, it's the Spirit giving us life. Sometimes I think we are missing out on the life that God wants for us because we're not pursuing godliness and opportunities to serve others in love. To not use the gifts that God has given us. Because again, naturally we might think, well, I'm just going to sort of keep everything to myself and that'll give me life. But actually it's in giving it away that we find life. And it's the Spirit who empowers that. So when the Spirit empowers you to change and empowers you to work and to serve others, that is a source of life to you. Thirdly, the Spirit is life-giving in that He is our helper. I'm going to use the word helper because that's what this translation of the Bible uses later on in the book of John. Other translations will use the word comforter or advocate or helper. Again, same word. The idea is that, well, let's just see what the Bible says on that. The first aspect of being the helper is being God's presence with us. Let me read to you from later in the book of John, from John 14. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is a very clear passage. When he says another helper, he's talking about himself being the first helper. <laughs> and Jesus says, when I leave, you're going to have another helper. And he's not just going to stay with you for three years. He's going to be with you forever. So the Spirit is life-giving in that he is the permanent presence of God with us. With each believer if you believe in Christ, you have the Spirit indwelling you. He never leaves you. He's always with you. And another part of being the helper comes from John chapter 16. That not only is he with you, but he is guiding you. We read to you from John 16, 7 and 13. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is saying, I have to go so you can have the Spirit. And here's what he's going to do for you. Verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but the, he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit gives us life in that he is always with us, and he is always guiding us in the truth. And you notice in that one, Jesus again was speaking about leaving. And again, put yourself in the disciples' shoes of what am I going to do without Jesus? Jesus says, it's going to be okay because I'm going to send the Spirit. 
And for us today, we, we never knew the physical presence of Jesus on earth. But Jesus is saying to us through his word, it's going to be okay because you have the Spirit. You're never alone. You're never alone in your decisions, in what you, you, you wonder about what you should do. He is always there, he is always with you, and he is always guiding you in the truth. So friends, as we look at this passage in John 7, we see a promise of life, and we see a promise of life after Jesus has left the earth and gone back to the Father. And the promise to the disciples back then is the same promise to us today. That those who believe, those who have placed their personal trust in Christ, Jesus has given to them the Holy Spirit to empower for godly work, to grow godly character, to never leave us, and to guide us in all truth. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus did die, rise again, and ascend to the Father so that he could send us the Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate, the comforter. And that the Spirit is a life-giving spirit that the Spirit makes us alive in Christ when we first believe and that he changes us to be more like Jesus in our character and our actions and that he is always with us wherever we go and guiding us in your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.